You notice on the uh, the screen up there we have um, or we had anyway yeah. the anchor of the soul. We're at a, a passage in Hebrews. Uh, we we looked at at the end of chapter five and through the beginning of chapter six. We looked at. Uh, the writer giving us one of the strongest warnings in all of God's word, in all of scripture. We looked at that last week. Uh, and he, it's a, a very, very strong exhortation to guard against apathy, uh, becoming apathetic about the things of God, uh, to guard against complacency, to become just kind of mundane about the things of God, uh, because those things unchecked will lead a person then and now into great spiritual peril. There are perils to this thing we call Christianity, and a great one is the peril of walking away, of just getting to a point of saying, you know what? This isn't doing anything for me. Well, it was never about you to begin with. It's about him. And as we appropriate him in our lives and we stay current with him, we avoid those perils. We looked at two main interpretations last week. We looked at the fact that if this, when he says that, that if you walk away and you, you crucify again to yourselves the Son of God, uh, and, and put him to open shame, that there was a place in Judaism where they had the old sacri- the Old Testament sacrifices, and in the sacrificial system they could sacrifice animals over and over again. That was what they did because they offered a covering for sin, never an elimination of sin. And so in that, you could interpret this passage of, uh, in, in the first part of chapter six, this, this warning, as he's warning them saying, if you go back to Judaism, don't even think about doing repeated sacrifices. You can't do that because if you try to do that with Christ, you put him to open shame. It's, he's different than an animal. And so there, that fits, and it fits the context, and, and, and it works. And we also talked about the other main interpretations. This, this is an effective warning for real Christians, and that uh, I talked about when I went scuba diving with a bunch of hungry sharks, and the, the people, uh, before I went down while I was on the boat, gave us a series of warnings of what not to do and what to do, because, and it was a very narrow range of things that we had to adhere to, in order to remain safe. And it was an effective warning. Nobody got eaten, nobody got munched, and nobody ever had that had followed their rules. That's how they put it to me, which I thought was really strange. But the point was, is it was an effective warning. You could look at this in Hebrews as an effective warning. He warns that something can happen doesn't necessarily mean that it will happen. And so we looked at that. Um, and then he goes on and he gives an illustration. He talks about the earth drinking in rain, remember? And, and, and he said that it's either going to produce fruits or it's going to produce thorns and thistles. And there's really nothing in between. It's either good fruit or it's thorns and thistles. He doesn't say, well, maybe small fruit. No, he doesn't say maybe just a little bit, a few thorns. And No, he gives a very clear delineation and it applies to this warning that he's given. Essentially, the point is, and I heard one time, if you're not a building Christian, you're a crumbling Christian. And that's the point he's making. There's no middle ground with God. There is no fence. They, oh, that person's sitting on the fence. No, there is no fence. That's a lie. Uh, you're either for me or you're against me, is what Jesus himself said. And so 
we have to take these things soberly. We have to take them seriously. We also have to take them in the context and in, in, in the understanding that while God is very serious about these things with us, that this was not talking about somebody who was struggling with sin. We all struggle. We all blow it. We all, and that's not an excuse. It's just a reality. And so we don't ever use the grace of God as a covering for sin. Well, hey, since I've got the grace of God, let's just go sin. Let's go live it up. That's no, that's not what he's talking about. But we do struggle with sin. And so we looked at this passage being about the sin of apostasy, the thorns and thistles being the apostate person. Uh, so he goes from that strong warning to great encouragement. And remember, we talked about the writer to this is very obviously a theologian. I mean, he knows his doctrine. He knows it very, very well. He knows Christianity and Judaism extremely well. But he's also a pastor. He's also uh, evidenced all through this letter is a pastor or a shepherd's heart. And, and so what we looked at, Last week was we ended with verses nine through eleven with him beginning this encouragement. Remember, I talked about it's kind of like if somebody you know screeched on the brakes and turned a corner real fast and plastered you up against the side of the car. It was like, wait a minute, I thought we were going down this road and looking at this really just tough, tough stuff. And all of a sudden he goes, hey, you know, I'm just I'm convinced of better things about you. And you know, hey, it's all and and it kind of throws us. I want you to understand he's not doing that to lighten the impact of what he has just said. What he is doing is he knows that these people are discouraged. They are really low. And he has just sucker punched them with talking about, hey, this is what's going to happen if you go all the way with your apostasy. And so he doesn't want to leave them bleeding. He doesn't want to leave them like lying there. Have you ever been really down and then somebody says or does something that it's like, oh, great, I'm, I'm just so done. You know, and, and, and something that, that just levels you. He wants to pick these people back up. He's not going to lessen what he said. He's not going to diminish what he's just said. But he is going to pick them back up and say, look, I, I, want, I want you to understand the seriousness, the gravity of this. But I also want you to understand I love you. And, and I have good things to say to you about where you're at and where you could be going. And so we're going to backtrack as we usually do here because context is everything. We're going to start in verse 9 where we covered 9 through 11 last week and go forward. We're going to actually cover the rest of the chapter this morning, the Lord willing. Uh, so in verse 9 he says, But beloved, we're con- confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Uh, again, he's saying, I, I, I'm confident you're not going to fall away. I care about you. I, I don't want to further discourage you. Uh, I want you to go on with the things that accompany salvation. Faithfulness, perseverance, patience, those kinds of things. And, and out of that will flow your service. And he'll talk about that. Why is he saying this? Because these are the things that prove you're not fruitless. These are the things that illustrate that you don't have thorns and thistles. That's why he tags this onto the end of that example of the warning that he's, that he's given. So it's not that the works save us, but the things that accompany salvation, but they do accompany. They are the outworking of someone who is regenerate, of someone who is redeemed, of someone who is saved. 
And so in verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints, believers, the saints, and you do minister. Uh, you know, I read this and I thought, does it ever seem, I mean, let's just be straight up about it. Do you ever have really low times where it just seems like God's not there? Really dry times or discouraging times where, man, I'm just going through this thing and I don't know what the end of it's going to be and I'm just burdened. It's just hard. And, and there are times that that it just gets hard and we don't see God moving in a tangible way or at least according to the way we're praying that he would move. And life gets really burdened down. That's what was going on with these people. And that's what happens with us, doesn't it? And something I got to thinking about my Uncle Al. Uh, my Uncle Al, was his last name was Amici. And, and Uncle Albert Amici worked for the Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And whenever I'd go to his house... Uh, he would come over, and it, I, it was just like the Godfather scenes. We, I mean, he was shorter, but he, he'd come over and go, Johnny, how you doing? I'd say, I'm doing good, Uncle Al. And then he'd say, how's business? He'd say, well, business is good. God is with you. And, and, and he would say that God is with you. And, and I, after I got saved, I mean, I was like, oh, that's nice and be polite and all that. And then I came to the Lord and then I would, and we'd have this talk over and over, over the years, you know, where there's a family gathering. And I always wanted to tell him after I came to an understanding, it's like, you know, things might look really bad. Business might be, you know, in the toilet and God is with me. Because he was tying it to my performance because the whole, and I don't want to get into a whole Catholic thing, but performance-based acceptance is where our world, it runs out from birth. You know, you, 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 you pee in the toilet, you get an M&M when you're getting potty trained, right? <laughs> you know, it's performance-based acceptance. I see you parents out there. <laughs> But it's grilled, it's just ingrained in us. I mean, you do a good job, you get a raise. You do a lousy job, sorry, we don't need you anymore. I mean, it's through and through. That's not the case. That's not how God operates. It's easy to think of God as blessing when good things are going on, isn't it? It's more difficult when things are hard. These people were sort of in an attitude of, well, you know, maybe God's really not with us in this Christianity thing. Look at all that's happened to us. Look at the mess our families are in. Look at the mess our work is in. Look at the mess our worship has been in. We can't go to temple and we can't do any of that. You know, and they were going through, I would submit to you, the same kinds of things that we go through, perhaps in some ways on a grander scale, but I really don't think so because this is written to people. And the encouragement that we can take from this is not missed on us. It's just important to remember that God doesn't always follow the, the, the law of cause and effect. Uh, I, I remember my brother, when he came to the Lord, I had told him, you know, God loves you, Jimmy. And, and, and he has a, a, a 
wonderful life for you. And, and, and he came to the Lord and I shared with his guys, with the guys on Wednesday night. And within like two months, he got laid off from his job. He had his van repossessed. His condominium went into foreclosure and his life fell apart. And he was weeping himself to sleep every night. And I'm calling him on the phone and saying, Jesus really does love you. And, you know, it really is. This is, and, and what God was doing, uh, was in that. I also, in, in one of my companies, I, I needed an operations manager and, cause my guy was moving to Washington and, and, and the Lord put it on my heart, ask your brother. <laughs> no way, Lord. I'm not going to have my oldest. He's nine years older than me, you know, and, and that plus, He's just really picky. I mean, in his closet, his shirts are two fingers apart, okay? And, and, and in his spice cabinet, they're alphabetized. And um, I'm lucky if it makes the cabinet. So, I mean, we're just way different. And so, and finally, I just relented. I said, okay, okay, because the Holy Spirit wouldn't let go of that with me. And I invited him to, to move from Southern Cal up to where I was. And and we had a number of years together with him working for me. And at one point he said, all right, John, I'm getting really confused. We've got to figure this out. And I said, what? He said, well, you're just wearing too many hats. You're my kid brother, my youngest brother. You're also my boss. And you're one of my pastors. And, you know, would you just like tell me what hat you're wearing when we start talking about something? Because I'm getting real confused. The, the point is, is it worked out really well. But it, it started with his life. When he hit the ground in Christ, everything fell apart. But God was moving. He was doing that to accomplish this. So, so often we can be short-sighted. That's the point. And that's the point the writer's making here. Don't be short-sighted about this. Yeah, there's perilous stuff out there. Yeah, there's trials out there. Yeah, your life might look a mess, but that is not proof that God's let go of you. It's not like Uncle Al, God is with you. You know, it's not that at all. It's truly, he's engineering things in your life that you have really no idea what he's doing. We just don't, and we want to know, don't we? I do. So it's not cause and effect. It's not, and it breaks my heart when I talk to somebody who's going through a trial, and they'll say, you know, I think God's mad at me. And, and I want to say, brother or sister, if you have come to Christ and you have come under his divinely gracious hand, he will never be mad at you again. That anger has passed over you through the blood of the, the lamb. It's not possible for God to be mad at you. Does he chasten his kids? Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to chapter 12. In Hebrews here. Yeah. Do we go to the woodshed with that? Yeah, because he loves us. All of that's true. But he's not mad at you. He's engineering circumstances in our lives. I have circumstances in my life I don't understand. I have circumstances that I, I, I say, Lord, I don't get this. I don't know where this is going. And yet I know that I need to trust you in it. And that's part of why this writer is launching into this lengthy encouragement to these guys. He says, you've worked hard and labored. The good fruit of serving others is what he's talking about. 
It's fruit. When you're serving the Lord, that's fruit. It's not something that you do because you're all that and more. It's something that God is compelling you to do that He gets the glory. We do serve Him and we serve Him at the pleasure of our King and for the glory of our King. And we're vessels through which He wants to work and accomplish things on this earth. And so He's saying God sees your service uh, and He takes note of it. Uh, I want to add here that he also takes note of people that serve chili and tacos. Um, just thought I'd throw that in. Note, too, that he says you have ministered and you do minister here in this verse. Uh, there's a point. He's, he's not just talking about their past faithfulness. That's great. I love seeing a pattern of faithfulness in people. You know, as a pastor, that's something that I love to see. That person is just faithful. That goes a long ways. Faithfulness is, I mean, it's just a a powerful testimony to someone's walk with the Lord. He's not saying, look at their past victories. No, he's saying, you're still serving. It's something that is current with you now. And, and folks, I want you to know too, this is not a letter to leadership in a church. This is a letter, it's an open letter to Christians. The serving God is very, very important. And, and again, we can get off. We can get out there with our service. We can, um, we can cover up a weak walk with the Lord with service. But effective service, I mentioned this before and I'll mention it again. <laughs> Effective service flows from relationship. It's never a means towards relationship. So allow God to work in your heart. Allow him to draw you close. Work on the nurture and the faithfulness and all of that in your relationship with him. Out of that, ask him what he'd have you do for him, for his kingdom, for the body of Christ. There's something for all of us to do, and there's great joy in serving. Great joy. And that might be, not necessarily here at the church, it might be just being a really good mom or a housewife. It might be letting your light so shine before men to glorify your Father in heaven at work. It might be, and you can fill in the blank. I mean, I'm not going to try to list the ways that we serve God, but uh, what he's saying to these guys here, he's saying, look, I see your heart in serving. And that service is flowing from the relationship that you have. Don't let that weaken. Don't let that weaken because God sees it. Uh, Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So, wait a minute. He's, He's saying the same diligence to the full assurance of hope? Is he saying diligently hopeful? That seems odd. That's exactly what he's saying. Uh, So why would he say that? The word diligence literally means careful and persistent work or effort. And what he's saying is there's a time where sometimes work, it's work to remain hopeful. He's saying you got to keep your eyes on the prize. You can't go with current circumstances because sometimes current circumstances are painful. Current circumstances are confusing. Sometimes what we're dealing with is overwhelming. 
And he's saying you've got to keep your eyes on the hope that you have in Christ. It won't always be this way. I don't know how many times, brothers and sisters, I have just, I'm lifting something up to the Lord and and I just sense the Holy Spirit saying this life is a vapor. It appears for a moment and it's gone. Because we go through hard things. We go through things that are weighty and things that are stressful. And, And yet, as we go through these things, it, what he's saying is you got to keep perspective. you got to keep a heavenly perspective because if you get to where you just have an earthly perspective on these things, you're going to get tossed around. You're going to get kicked around. But remain hopeful. Keep your eyes on Christ is what he's saying. And diligently do that. Let it be something that you carefully and persistently work at because their circumstances were not good. And yet he's saying, you know, there's a way to live. I've told people before, I I can't change your circumstances, but I can show you by the word of God how to live really well within them. And that's true. What it requires is keeping our eyes on Christ and not on our circumstances. Understanding that I don't get, I don't understand why I have the circumstances I have. I don't know why the doctor said what the doctor said. I don't know why the bank called the other day. I don't know why this. I don't know why that. But I do know that I'm a child of the king. And I do know that I'm headed for heaven. And when I get there, he's going to wipe away every tear. You know, burdens that we have. I know we, we have those things that we have... There are people that we miss that have gone on before us. There are things that go on in our lives. And he's saying, take courage. Be diligent to be hopeful. Concentrate on being hopeful. There's a time to press in to Christ. Paul in Philippians 3 says, I haven't laid hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. But this I do, I press on toward the goal of the high calling in Christ Jesus. We'll greatly benefit. You know, it will work out. It probably won't work out the way that you picture it. We have a little mental photo album. We picture the way things are going to go. They hardly ever do. Uh, it's not likely going to work out in the way that you picture it. Or and, and here's another one. It probably won't work out at the speed to which you want it to work out. Um, but the exhortation is to hold on. Verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Question, are you walking faithfully or are you struggling? Are you walking patiently or struggling? He's speaking about maturity here. What he's saying is look to and apply God's word, because as you do that, you will see that your faith will grow. You'll see that your patience will increase as we apply God's word to our lives. He's going to launch into giving Abraham as an example of the very things that he's saying here. And the reason he does that is he knows the value of God's word and he knows the value of applying God's word. And he applies it to these people's lives and by default to our lives as well. It's about discipleship. Uh, you know, Jesus in the Great Commission said, go and make disciples of men. 
But I think that when people are also in a place where you're, you're already a disciple and you know someone that perhaps is struggling, uh, he says to strengthen them. The writer's heart here, it, 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 to be a help to those who are struggling, to be an example to God's people in humility, reach out. If you know somebody's struggling, you know, don't get to the flesh. Oh man, look at that. You know, don't you have that thing down? I mean, because they might have a struggle in an area that you've got wired. But in humility, go and say, you know, I understand you're hurting. Can I, can I share some things with you? Um, because people are hurting, they're discouraged, they're depressed, they're anxious. And we can be used of God to direct them to his word, to his provision in their lives. He's saying, pattern your life after those who are mature. Uh, those who plod along day by day, month by month, year by year. And they're just simply faithful. We're going to read through verses 13 through 20, and then we'll spend some time uh, unpacking those. Uh, he says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, after the, or according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a lot. And in the short amount of time, the next half hour or so, we'll see if we can uh, uh, figure out what he's saying here. First is in verses 13 and 14, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, again, he's going to use Abraham as an example, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So in this example, he's he's saying that God is going to swear, but since God is God, there's no one greater than him, he's going to swear by himself. It'd be like, you know, in a court of laws, I I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. He's not going to say, so help me me. You know, it's he's God. So there's no one greater, so he swears by himself. He can't lie, and we'll get into that. But the point is, is he quotes Genesis 22 here, where in, in Genesis 22, God is saying to Abraham those exact words. He's saying, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In other words, they're going to be strong. They'll prevail. Um, in verse 18 in Genesis, there he says, in 22, he says, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So this was a reminder to the first century Christians about the promise to Abraham, and to, for them to understand the promise to Abraham is a promise to us. He's talking about, Abraham, you're going to have a child. You're going to, through you, through your seed, 
the nations of the earth will be blessed. And not only blessed, they're going to be strengthened. And yet, what is this promise? He starts in Genesis 22, and at Genesis 22, he's already had a couple of kids, one named Ishmael and one named Isaac. Uh, and so, but the writer starts there because he wants these Hebrew Christians in the first century, he wants them to lock into the fact that, now I'm going to use Abraham as an example. He goes right to the end of the story to say, look, here's how God's going to do this. He's, this he wants to bless. And you got to understand that his promises are for you. And so back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is 75 years old when the Lord appears to Abraham and says, to your descendants, I'll give this land. Right after he came into the land of Canaan. The, the Jews in the first century would know this very well. This is like Judaism 101. They would understand Abraham was the father of the nation. And they would totally get what this was about. And then in Genesis 15, Abraham, he's going along after God makes him this promise, and he's trying to figure it out. And it says, Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Another guy, uh, one was living there, had a, had a kid, and was like, is that my heir? I don't understand. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. So Abraham questions God, and God says, no, the child's going to come from you. And, and you know, we could get into the whole deal about Abraham 75, and he thinks that's funny, and then his wife thinks it's funny, uh, and all that, but I'm not going to belabor that. The point the writer is making here is that there is a promise that God had made. And, and so then, fast forwarding to Genesis 21.5, It says, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. The writer is telling these people, you need to be patient. I know that your circumstances are lousy right now. Don't take it as God is not working. Don't take it as God has abandoned us. Don't take it as Christianity is not valid or not worth pursuing. Abraham was promised a child. And it took 25 years for God to bring that about. And so you need to patiently endure is the point he's wanting to make here. Uh, Does that mean that Abraham didn't go through any trials or that he didn't sometimes falter in his faith? His wife did. She gave him her handmaid to have a child. And and, uh, Ishmael was born and he is still, uh, the descendants of Ishmael are still a heartache to the Jewish people. I mean, he's the father of the Arab race. And yet, through it all, Abraham patiently endured. He had to wait 25 years from the time God made the promise, and he swore to him to do it. And when the promise came forth, when it came about, that's the point this guy's making. He's saying, I want you to apply God's word to your life. I want you to see that you're not the first person that's had question marks hanging over your head when it comes to the will of God for what's going on with the things that you're dealing with. 
Look at Abraham. It says that when he had patiently endured, uh, something I've noticed in my life that a season of patient endurance is also a season of spiritual battle. Discouragement is real, folks. Uh, I know when when I have circumstances that I'm having to patiently wade through and, and wait on the Lord, uh, doubt can start to creep in. It had with these people. Is God really gonna? Does He really have this? Is that? Is He really gonna bring this off? Uh, it can become a time where um, will He come through? And those are times when our faith is built. That is, that's the foundation of Him strengthening our faith so often. And don't minimize that. That doesn't mean that you get up in the morning and go, Ah, I love my circumstances. No, sometimes we don't love our circumstances. But we can love Him and know that our circumstances are in His hands. Verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Now, uh, this was a, it was an, an oath was an assurance and it was the custom in Israel that they would swear an oath. I remember growing up, you know, my, my teenage siblings, you know, they'd say something to me and I'd go, uh-uh. And they'd go, oh, swear to God. And I'm like, that got to not mean so much because sometimes they were still pulling my leg. As a matter of fact, Jesus warns, and then James kind of backs it up. He says, don't do oaths. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and everything else is evil. Uh, because it's about just being honest. It's about stating it like it is. And yet, in this case, in the case of Israel, their custom was that they would give an oath. I thought about Boaz giving his sandal to the kinsman redeemer at the gates of the city when he purchased Ruth and Naomi. Uh, he was making an oath that he was going to pay the purchase price. That's how they did it. He gave him a, a sandal. It seems weird, but that's what they did. And so the people, again, they would understand this. An oath for confirmation was like a handshake for us. Want to shake on it? Okay, we've got a deal. Uh, and that used to mean a lot more than it does. And yet... Uh, it, it, it showed that God's promises, this oath, the one that, that God is making, he's saying God is making an oath here, it shows that his promises, like his character, are unchanging. Uh, Abraham's trust in the oath that God made would be the gateway to God's fulfilling the promise that he'd made for him to have a child. If God had not let Abraham know ahead of time, look, this is going to happen, Abraham would have just wandered around and wondered or he would have just been totally given up and he never would have thought about having a child at 100 years old. And yet God was moving, God was working. Verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Verses 17 and 18 are packed. Uh, I'll just go through here and tag some of these deals. Uh, the heirs of promise, who's that? 
Uh, the heirs of promise in Abraham's day were Abraham and his family. Heirs of promise in the first century were the first century Hebrew believers. The heirs of promise is everybody who hears my voice. I mean, it, it, we are the heirs of promise. We are the ones who inherit the promises of God. And so we are heirs. The Bible tells us that over and over again throughout the New Testament. So what he's talking about here is he says the immutability of his counsel. What immutable means is it's unchangeable. It's locked. It's concrete. It God is part of his nature is he is immutable. He does not change. You can bank on it. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He doesn't change. And the, the immutability of his counsel is mean, means that if he says something, if he makes a promise, if he makes an oath, it's going to happen. It can't not happen. He's, he's God. He, it, it has to be. When he says two immutable things here, the first is his promise that God has promised. He promised Abraham a child. He's promised to these people that he would be there for them, that he is their God, they're his people, and that they can bank on the fact that they're in right relationship to him. He backs it up with an oath. That's the two immutable things, the promise and the oath. And so out of that, he wants these people to receive what he calls strong consolation. And I came across something that Charles Spurgeon wrote. I'll read it to you. He says, it is a strong consolation that can deal with outward trials when a man has poverty staring him in the face. And here's his little children crying for bread. When bankruptcy is likely to come upon him through unavoidable losses, when the poor man had just lost his wife and his dear children have been put into the same grave, when one after another all earthly props and comforts have given way, it needs strong consolation then. Not in your pictured trials, but in your real trials. Not in your imaginary whimsied afflictions, but in the real afflictions and the blustering storms of life. To rejoice then and say, though these things be not with me as I would have them, yet has he made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, this is strong consolation. His point is that looking beyond the circumstances, looking beyond the affliction, looking beyond the difficulty, seeing God's faithfulness, seeing his promises are sure and steadfast, they're immutable in the midst of those things. Now he says something interesting here in, in the second half of verse 18. He says uh, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This is very Jewish and, and you can pass right over it if you don't understand some things that are going on back in Numbers chapter 35. There were, when Israel went into the land, God designated six cities as cities of refuge. There were three on the east side of the Jordan River, three on the west side. And what it was, was if somebody accidentally killed someone else, if they were a manslayer, and they were guilty of manslaughter, they didn't mean to, but you know, he swung his axe and the head fell off, you know, flew off and you know, got the guy. He gives a bunch of examples back in Leviticus, but it, it's an accidental thing. There was no willful intent to do harm to someone. That guy was guilty of manslaughter, but 
God made provision for him. He, if he could run, I mean, he would like see the guy fall over dead. He's like, gotta go. And he would run to the nearest city of refuge. If he beat the avenger of death, and that was a person in that person's family would be appointed as the avenger of death. I know these are weird Levitical laws, but they're true. And, and what happened was if that guy could beat the avenger of death to the city of refuge, once he stepped over the threshold of the city, he was safe. And he could not be harmed by the avenger of death. Now, if he took one step outside and the avenger of death was there, he could take his life. The interesting thing about that is that guy, now they would have a, you know, a trial kind of a thing, and, and the high priest was there and all, and, and they would pass sentence on him that he would be, if they proved that it was an accidental death, he could stay in that city of refuge, and his sentence was for as long as the high priest was alive. Now when the high priest died, he was free to go back to the life that he had. So when he says in this, he says, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, the Hebrew mind, remember, you're a Jew. You've got to think like a Jew in this. The person who is, has a Jewish understanding, a Jewish background, would immediately lock onto this and go, oh, what's he getting at? This is cool. He's talking about cities of refuge. I don't know what he's getting at. It, we, we fled. We, we might have strong consolation. We're going to flee for refuge to lay hold of the hope. Again, he's still talking about hope here. Why is that so important? Because without it, we're going to flounder. Without it, without hope in Christ, without hope in the finished work of the cross, without hope in the power of the resurrection, without hope that heaven is coming, we're going to have a whole different perspective, and it's not going to be a good one. We're going to flounder out there in the world. So he goes through this whole deal. And the distinction that he makes there is that our refuge isn't found in a city. It's found in a person. His name is Jesus. Uh, and, and, and so as he does that, uh, we, deserving of death, we flee to Jesus. He is the hope that's set before us. He is our refuge. He is the one. It's, it's not a physical place. It's something that goes on inside of us as our lives are pressed in, as we go through very difficult things, that we flee, that we find refuge in him. And that's what the writer's bringing about. These people are stressed. Remember, they're stressed, they're discouraged. They're struggling. And he's saying, you know, you can flee for refuge in the middle of your circumstances and find hope in Jesus. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. <sighs> he's starting to get, when he talks about entering the presence behind the veil, there's an illusion. He's beginning to work back into the high priest because the high priest is the only one that could go behind the veil, both in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And so... We're seeing some hints about the high priest, but uh, let's talk about the anchor of the soul. Now, this hope we have, this anchor of the soul, that's why I titled the message this, is very important. Uh, it's sure and steadfast, he says, and it enters the presence behind the veil. An anchor pre preserves a ship when the waves beat and the wind blows. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is safe. 
and the mariner, whoever's on the ship, is not in danger. And so it is with the soul of the Christian. In in the trials that we go through, in in the tempests of, of life, his mind is calm. As long as my hope of heaven is in place, it's firm. Because if that gives way, we'll begin to drift and begin to feel that perhaps all is lost. That's what was happening with these people. This is a great uh, metaphor for hope. This hope is an anchor for the soul. And it's not just, I mean, he uses the fact that a ship drops, drops its anchor and it can, it can weather the storm. And, and so can we if that anchor for our soul is our hope that is found in Christ. When he talks about which enters behind, the, enters the presence behind the veil, the writer shifts back to the high priest. He begins this whole thing that he started. Remember in chapter five, verses five and six, he said, we have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He said, but you've become dull of hearing. You should be able to hear this, but you can't. And then he goes into this whole deal and he talks about being dull of hearing and then this, this, severe warning, and now in this encouragement that he's giving, he's beginning to shift back to where he was before, it's sort of like in these parentheses where he's saying, you know what, you could have some real trouble here, but let me encourage you, if you move forward, there are good things in store. And so what he's doing is he's referring back, and it's like he pushes in the clutch at at chapter 5 there in the first few verses, goes into all of this, and now he's going to let the clutch back out because he's going to say exactly the same thing in verse 20 as he said then. In verse 20, he says, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to look at Melchizedek next week. I've been looking forward to this part of the study. I love getting and rooting around in the Old Testament and... um sort of, you know, putting a face on this guy. But something that's really interesting about this is that uh, in the Old Testament, the priest didn't enter behind the veil as a forerunner. He entered behind the veil as a representative. Remember the priestly function, representing God to men and men to God? That's what priests do. This is the only place that this word is used. It's called prodromos, is, is the Greek word. And it's a military word. It's the, it's the reconnaissance guy. It's, this is the scout that would be sent ahead to make sure everything was safe before the troops went in. So what the writer is doing here, it's subtle, but it's profound. As he's saying, Jesus has entered the immediate presence of God the Father as a forerunner. So that now, his people can follow him there. Remember, that veil was torn when Jesus was on the cross. The the way was open to complete access to God. And so when the writer says this, I mean, it would have bugged these guys' eyes out because that's not what a high priest does. No, he goes as a representative. He doesn't go as a scout. He doesn't go as a reconnaissance guy to check it out. To pave the way. And that's exactly what he's saying in this, folks, is he's saying you have absolute access that it's not the high priest once a year to go into the presence of God. He's saying, no, 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 that's not it anymore. Jesus 
the reason that we he is our hope is he goes behind the veil as a forerunner, as a prodromos, and he beckons us to come with him before the throne of God. Not once a year, but whenever. That's great news. I mean, that would be greatly encouraging to these people. And as I studied this out, I was like, Lord, this is just so good. I love the way that you put this stuff together. And the other thing about that is, why does he relate the manslayer? Because the high priest, remember the high priest, he had to stay in the city of refuge until the high priest died, right? He says here, we have a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Why would anybody who has tasted this ever want to go back to the life that they had? That's the point. It's a subtle point, but it's a strong point that the writer's making. No, that's not an option. We've talked about that. We talked about it last week. We talked about it here in this chapter as he's giving you know the parameters. Look, you can't do that. You do. You crucify the Son of God to, and you put him to open shame. You can't do it. And so now as he brings in this thing about the cities of refuge and about the guy who would go and take refuge there and was free to stay there until the high priest died, then he could go back to the way that he was living before. He's saying, no, in this case, there's a big difference. We have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not going to die. And so that's your refuge permanently. You can bank on it. And that's the point he's making in this. We have a high priest forever. And we can follow him right into the, into the presence of God. Who would ever want to let go of that hope? And that's the point that he's made. He's basically encouraged these people. He's saying, look, let me give you a strong encouragement after this strong exhortation. And, and let me tell you what you have. And let me tie it to Judaism in a way that you'll see that these things are all fulfillments of things that were shadowed in the Old Testament, shadowed in the law of Moses. It's so much greater. Jesus is a greater high priest. We're going to get into that more and more as we look at Melchizedek. But remember, the theme in Hebrews here is Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better as a high priest than an earthly high priest because he does this differently. He goes behind the veil as a forerunner, not as a rep, as a representative. To close with um, Romans chapter 5, a quote here. Uh, it just echoes what we're talking about, the Apostle Paul writing here to the church at Rome. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Folks, I don't know what you're going through today. I know what I'm going through. And let your heart be encouraged. He is our hope. He is a sure hope. He's not a hope so hope. He's a no so hope. Big difference. 
You can bank on Jesus. You can bank on his activity in your life, whether you see it or not. There are times it's it's like when I was teaching my kids to walk. Uh, I, I remember specifically my daughter. Um, she's a little chunker when she's a girl. And, and she was kind of, I would hold her arms and, and she would kind of shakily kind of walk forward and, and you know, kind of, and, and if she started to go down, I was right there. I was behind her and I would grab her and she'd, you know, and, and then we'd try it again. And as she got to walking more, I would let my hands go and she would continue to walk. And sometimes I feel like that's me. Like God's let his hands off of my arms. He's allowing me to walk and, and I'm thinking, man, I'm all alone in this thing and it's kind of shaky and all. And yet, Every time, and you know, I've been walking with the Lord for going towards 40 years now, and, and every time that I've begun to falter, He's there to catch me. He has a 100% track record. That's immutable. And yet it seems like we're walking on our own sometimes. It seems that when we're shaky and things are not going right, that we don't know how it's gonna, how it's gonna work out. It seems like that a lot, and yet He's always there as a loving father, to, to take us, to steady us, to get us walking again, and then to pull his hands back and just let us walk. But he's never far from us. I think about that example in my own life, and um, I, I, I know it to be true, because that's how it feels sometimes. The, the point in this is, remember Abraham? He waited for a long time for the promise to come about. The other thing is rely on the promise of the gospel. Draw near to Christ. Let him use the circumstances in your life. He is not, I'll tell you folks, he is not as interested in how comfortable you are as he is in what he wants to accomplish in your heart and your life. That is absolutely true. And and sometimes we squirm, don't we? Sometimes it's it's hard to, uh, I, I just... Like, Lord, do you, is there another way you can do this? But he does it to, to, to draw us nearer to him, to break us from self-reliance and to bring us to greater reliance on him. Hope in our high priest. Why? Because he is the anchor of your soul. Let's pray. Father, Oh, so much ground to cover in so little time. And yet, I pray it's sufficient, Lord. As we consider the...